So what um, are we going to do today? So, well, I, I mean, I just, I mean, we're doing it. I, I want right. to kind of, I'll, I'll cut, I'll cut that last part out, but, okay. um, but I, uh, I mean, I, I want to just kind of pick your brain. I know you, you know, obviously you've got your podcast out now. Um, so I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that on this channel. Uh, and then also really, I just wanted to kind of pick your brain and you, you brought up before neurotrophic and, and, um, neuropathic pain. And, and that's one I don't think I've completely neuropathic pain is one I haven't completely been able to feel like I've, I've grasped well enough. What's interesting is, uh, neurotrophic, um, I don't know how, why that is, but when new stuff comes available, it seems like you see things more like my, the amount of times I saw neuro you know, neurotrophic keratitis in the past that I recognize pretty small, but now over the last three or four months, it's like, man, well, why am I seeing more of this? And maybe it's just because I, I, I can do more things about it. So I'm more aware of it. Um, but what's your sense of that? And what's your sense of like neuropathic pain and how do you well, manage that? It's exactly the same. You know, my, my diagnosed cases of neurotrophic keratitis prior to the introduction of Oxidivate were zero in my entire career, which has been a long time. And when I heard this was coming out, I thought, good for you. You know, it's a rare disease. I'll never see it. And I think, you know, when we, a couple things to that, you know, similar for blepharitis, now that we have Tarsus coming out with something, no doubt you're going to see more B88.0 for diagnosis codes because doctors are going to look. Um, the, the ptosis with apneic, et cetera, we, now we have a way to treat that. So we look more because in the past we couldn't do much about it. But the the neurotrophic keratitis part is very, very interesting because, you know, you get these patients coming back, you, tr you think maybe perhaps they have dry eye, they've got SPK, you treat them, you treat them, you treat them. They're not really complaining symptomatically, but you can't get the cornea looking good. And you simply take a little cotton swab and try to touch it and, and voila, they can't feel it. And you think, oh my gosh, I've been missing it. And I, you know, really interesting case. I had a 25-year-old woman who in her high school years wore nightwear ortho-K and she had this SPK and I said, I'm going to test your corneal sensitivity. She said, oh, I don't have any sensation in my cornea. I can put drops in. I don't feel anything. I thought, wow. And sure enough, sure enough. And we had treated her all the traditional dry therapies and it turns out she was neurotrophic. Mild, but she was neurotrophic. And, you know, things like pars plantar vitrectomy can cause neurotrophic keratitis and even retina doctors that weren't necessarily aware of that. So those innovations yeah. lead to education and awareness. And now we have a way to finally treat some of these patients. Welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Scott Schachter about his new podcast. Um, it's called Ocular Surface Academy Podcast. And specifically it's dealing with digging into TFOS and all of the, the TFOS members and the different subcommittees within the DUES2 report to try to translate evidence-based medicine into bedside clinical care. Uh, it was a great conversation I had with Scott. Uh, I'd love for you to check out his podcast. You can find it on all the different podcast apps. Uh, as always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. I think we're in the best time to practice optometry. Yes, on this podcast, we've discussed the expansion of corporate entities, vertical integration, online retailers, and unproven technology. But I truly believe if we're taking care of our patients and offering the newest and best options for their eye health and vision, these disruptors will only serve as a clear distinguisher between what patients can get from them and what they expect from us. 
In our practice, we've had a ton of success for our patients in terms of comfort, vision, and stability with proven optical designs of Cooper Vision's Biofinity Torque. The Biofinity Torque Multifocal combines that torque design and its rapid stabilization with the flexibility and customization of the Biofinity Multifocal Lens. This provides our presbyopic astigmatic patients with an excellent option for minimizing their dependence on glasses. Check out the show notes and link to Cooper Vision's website for contact lens parameters and more release information. Sorry, I, I want to get to the neuropathic pain as well, but yeah. the, the neurotrophic one is interesting because, you know, it sort of opens up a Pandora's box, so to speak. It's like, well, is it is it HSK or was it a prior HSK event? Was it, you know, intraocular surgery? Do I need to be worried about some other form of, of stroke that may have happened in a patient? Like how far, you know, so I, I guess my, my, my thought about Pandora's box is I can see clinicians wondering like, oh man, I look at, I look at Will's and it's all these other things. Or, or can it be the case that we might just have a, a situation where you've got such chronic dry eye for so long that you, you become a little bit neurotrophic? Well, absolutely. All those things can, all can cause that yeah. to occur. But when you have long-standing inflammation causing nociceptive damage, right? So the regular nociceptive pain that we get, those get frayed. And I believe, and I'm, I'm talking to Pedro Munran and Aguilar soon, and I'm trying to get a better understanding of how do you either go neuropathic so you fire when you shouldn't be or neurotropic where you don't fire when you should be so what's the differentiator and how does that happen and can neuropathic actually become neurotropic and i've got patients so i can tell you with very high symptoms yet i can touch their cornea and they don't feel it so those sensations could be coming from somewhere else and maybe it's the conge maybe it's the lids um so i think there's still so much to be learned about both of those disease states. Last time we talked, um, was, I was almost, I don't know if it was, it was close to two years ago when we talked on this podcast and um, about this specifically. And, and we were, maybe it was a year ago. I can't remember when, well, no, maybe we were sitting down and talking at a meeting, but um, you know, I made the comment about gabapentin and then we were talking about neuropathic pain. And I was still, I, I still haven't wrapped my mind around how to differentiate between those patients who are, um, you know, who are having neuropathic pain and how to best manage them. So what, what's been your sense of like, okay, Chris, you see a patient with dry eye symptoms. This is how you, that isn't getting, that, that has no significant, or maybe you've, you've fixed the, the, the significant ocular surface issues that you're seeing with all the other stuff. And we can talk about that, but now you're left with a patient who still has a speed score of 20 and no staining or minimal staining. And, uh, or, like, what is your thought process? And okay, this is what I do. These are the tests I do. And this is how I'm going to treat them. Well, pain without stain, right? Like you're mentioning. And and, and you maybe resolve, like you said, resolve the ocular surface and the pain persists. Um, and the way I differentiate that's with preparacane. Have you done that? No. So you got to oh, pay. Patient. But I know where you're going. You have a pain, yeah, pain, right? So they're telling you my eyes really hurt. I can't stand it. It's driving me crazy. I asked him, okay, on a scale of zero to 10, we're going to call this a 10. I'm going to put a drop of preparacane in and you tell me what happens. If that pain goes to zero, I know I'm dealing with peripheral neuropathic pain, right? And I also may have some potential to help that patient. So I might do autologous serum, amniotic membrane, cyclosporin. have all been shown in research to help with that. Uh, so if we reduce the pain by, by numbing the surface of the eye, we can perhaps help them. 
if that pain stays at a 10, now we've got problems. I know it's all central and that's going to be pain management for us. First of all, it's going to be education. You know, this pain is not coming from here, even though it feels like it's coming from there. And we need to manage that systemically. And some may tell you it's about 50-50. And well, that's about probably the kind of improvement we can get. We can work on the surface, but we may still require pain management. And uh, I don't do a lot. I send that out, you know, and there's a recent paper by Pedram Humra and others about low-dose naltrexone uh, potentially helping patients with neuropathic pain. Hmm. But a lot of it's just simply, not simply, a lot of it's, it's just very important to educate that patient. You, their pain is real. And you may have been a doctor sort of telling you there's nothing wrong with you. You're crazy. Well, it's like diabetic neuropathy. It's the same thing. You have, you have pain and it's just not related to the surface of the eye. It's the nerves that are just aberrant. Who have you found to be the best people to work with in, in those terms? Like, like, um, are you working with anesthesiologists that specifically specialize in pain? Has it been even a more subspecialty group that'll take it seriously when you, when you send a referral like that? Yeah. If you can find a good primary care doctor who has a good understanding of that, sometimes some of these patients will already be under pain management. Um, you know, the other questions you might ask them when you're trying to differentiate, ask them about sleep, ask them about depression and anxiety. Ask them if it feels like they have a paper cut on their eye or when they see light or wind hits them, it's burning pain. Have you ever walked into an exam room with a patient who has a, a brimmed hat on because the overhead lights are driving them crazy? And I had a patient a couple of weeks ago refer to me. She can, she can barely open her eyes. I mean, I'm trying to let she can't. She sits in the room with her eyes closed. There are not much pain. So all these things tend to go along with it, poor sleep, anxiety, depression. Um, and you can even, I think there's some sort of a forearm test where you can poke somebody in the forearm and see how they respond to that. Um, patients who you put a drop in their eyes and it really wipes them out, uh, really, they're hypersensitive to so many things. Hmm. You know, I, I, I get these patients too where... Um, you brought up anxiety and, and it makes me wonder because that's, that's what I see a lot of is that these patients that are, you know, they finally get referred in to me to, and they've, they've done, you know, X, Y, and Z. And part of it is that the doctor that's sending them has tried stuff, but the, the patient is persistent, right there. And, and if you, if you don't have a lot of experience, one of the detractors in terms of integrating ocular surface management in your practices, you know, you get those patients where, you're looking at them and it's like, oh, they, they should be feeling fine. Why are they so uncomfortable? Why are they calling me all the time? And every single little thing is bringing them back in and it can be detracting. So like, you're like, ah, I don't know, somebody else needs to take a look at this. And then, then, then you sort of lose your sense of confidence in the whole disease management process. Uh, and, and when you see enough of those patients, you realize that there is something with patients who have chronic ocular pain that whether it's from dry eye or it's neuropathic, that will lead to anxiety. So my question really is, is the anxiety stemming from this fact that they are worried about being in pain so much, or does pain actually, does the anxiety actually cause the pain? What's your thought about that? I mean, you could say the same about depression. I mean, it's chicken or egg. I don't really, I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that question. If you have dry eye and you get depressed, or if you're depressed, you get dry eye. And I, I don't know that the answer to that is really known. And, and then when you talk about making sure that, you know, Do, uh, Dr. Carlos Belmonte from Spain, who's part of the TFOS Dues 2 pain sensation, he was a subcommittee chair. 
um, we spoke a couple of weeks ago on the podcast and he said, be careful not to jump to neuropathic pain. So be sure that you're actually optimizing the surface of the eye. And, and that comes into minor techniques like when you instill fluorescein, make sure you're waiting a minute or two before you look. Ideally, if you have a rat and filter, and I have this awesome firefly slit lamp that I love, uh, which shows pictures and with a rattan filter, it brings up stuff so much better than cobalt blue. And, and I'm seeing a lot of these patients that actually have um, basement membrane dystrophies in addition to this. You know, corresponding, mm-hmm. a lot of patients that I'm treating this way are also having anterior membrane or epithelial basement membrane dystrophies. So be, be sure that you're truly optimizing the surface of the eye rather than jumping to that diagnosis. But I think a lot of us have been overlooking it. Yeah, I, I like, so I like the way you simplified the approach to like, once you get to that point of fixing the surface, right, the pain without stain, um, or you kind of hit a brick wall where you're not getting any additional improvement, thinking through the, you know, is it, is it neuropathic? Is it neurotrophic? And then if you think it's neuropathic using, using, I mean, it's very simple, right? Using preparacane to, to go down that road. I've, I've done that with other things before, but I haven't really thought about it in that sense. But I like your differential of, is it central or is it peripheral? Uh, that's really helpful for me. Um, so then what are your, within the, within the podcast, one of the, the things that um, I think are really interesting. So when uh, Dr. Sullivan, when you were talking to him, that was illuminating. I, I don't really get into like when, when he was talking about, I think he went into like his CV for like 15 minutes and I was like, man, just get to the, like, I, I know that, I, I, you know, I know that some of those guys think that I'm sure. And he seems like a really nice guy, but what was really cool about the conversation for me was the um the history of of like tfos and dues and dues too and how different entities wanted to come in and control things and like that was really fascinating to me and it you know i've seen sort of a microcosm of it within um within stuff that i do but it's got to be really challenging because you need industry to be able to kind of develop new things um it does open our eyes to those new things when we have ways that we can treat them. But, um, but what are your thoughts on, on that whole conversation and that whole area of dues and how were they able to really mitigate and manage uh, those outside entities that were funding it from having too much drive in creating it? Well, I, th- I think that's the doctors they chose to, you know, the 150 ODs, MDs, PhDs who were subcommittee chairs, et cetera, um, I think they just tro- chose a solid group of people who weren't going to be swayed. And, and as you know, maybe you know, when you get into the upper echelons, um, people have their theories and they're not likely to be for sale. Um, so right. they're putting their reputation on, on all of this. And, and I think ultimately industry in general um, is, is fairly respectful of just we're going to sponsor you and you're going to gather interest. And we don't, I mean, if it, if it comes off as a bot consensus or a bot algorithm, I think doctors will see through that. And, and I've been, um, you know, they'll make for re- the, the treatment recommendation section is pretty broad. You know, we, we talk about step two is to write a dry medication and they're not going to tell you write one, two, there's three of them. They'll tell you write one. Or in, in office, my bony gland expression, when there's three of those, I'm not going to tell you which one, but that's what you should be doing. Um, and, and they really vetted 
the references. So I think when you put together a big team like that, to get all those doctors to agree on what's for lunch, let alone, let alone you know, hey, this sponsor wants you to say that, I'd, good luck. So, but, but they, yeah. they did put that, I mean, Dr. Sullivan's history, we could have spoken for hours on, I mean, he was doing research on dry eye probably before you were born, you know, and I, I was sure, in yeah, high school. Sure. I mean, in the 1980s, the things he was working on, these were really the pioneers and, uh, they, and they didn't sell out. And he was at Harvard for years at Scapins. And um, I get notifications by email when people cite his research. So I see what he's, what's going on. And it's, I get seven emails a day on his wow. research being cited. He's, I've met him before, but I never knew what a wealth of information he was. I have a new respect for all the work that he's done. That's the purpose. That's the cool part. Yeah, that's the cool part I was going to say about podcasts is that, you know, we, we get to read about the literature that these people are putting out, right? We get to interpret it ourselves. And guys like you and me get to communicate that literature through our filter, right? Through our clinical and filter when we're communicating to ODs. But what you're doing is putting it right to the source and how do they, you know, how do they do the research? How do they interpret the, the, uh, what their findings are and what is it, you know, where, where are they missing? And so, yeah, you know, what are your other thoughts about that? Well, that, that's the, I mean, that's the, the genesis of this whole thing. I may have told you, I met Dr. Essen Akpak in Washington, DC when I was at a TFOS event and, uh, she shared her story of how she was working with Sjogren's patients and she could show if you had corneal staining, you read slow at 28 words per minute, I believe over 30 minutes of sustained gaze. And that to me was, just, oh my gosh. I mean, first of all, you can equate slit lamp findings to quality of life issues. And second, why have I never heard of you before? I bet you I've cited your research, but I didn't notice your name. And I thought, I want to put you people in the forefront. And after talking to Dr. Belmonte, uh, he graciously sent me this really nice email unsolicited and said, I want to thank you as a basic scientist for putting our voice out there because they're too busy or they don't want to go out and talk about it. They're just too busy doing the work to go out and tell you what they're doing. So I wanted to highlight those people. You know, there are a lot of us talking heads who go around and we reference all their stuff. But like you said, I wanted to go right to the people and learn what makes them tick. What was your inspiration to get into dry and what's, what excites you about what's coming next? What has been your, so far, your, so you're planning a series of 20, right? A series of 20. And then I'm interested to see what you do with that, with that afterwards, right? Because then there's this whole platform that gets built that, you know, as I always say, is that one of the values of podcasts is the recurrent, uh, the recurrence of it, right? It, you, you continue to, to explore new ideas and new topics. So I can't wait, you know, way down the road when that happens. But how did you pick your 20? And so far to date, the ones that you have had, the conversations you've had, um, What's been like the, is there been one thing that really sticks out in your mind of like, oh, wow, this was a light bulb that went off and now I got to change something else besides the initial introduction into uh, this idea as you just described. Well, I, I came up with 20 really based on, there's, I believe about 12 subcommittees and some of them warranted more than one, one episode. So Dr. Belmonte, who was the subcommittee chair for pain and sensation, we interviewed him. Um, doctors Hamra and Galore are also part of that committee. They weren't subcommittee chairs, but they're part of it. But they're going to also have an episode on that because I think pain and sensation is really something new. That's part of the new definition of dry. Um, talking to uh, 
you know, Dan Nelson is someone who I never had heard of before. Had you heard of him before? Yeah. And, and no, you'll, most, of, you'll, most you'll, of them, most of the guys you, that you've talked about, I, I haven't heard of. Yeah. You'll and get, most of the, your, but, but in fairness, most of them are PhDs or ophthalmologists, right? A lot of PhDs. Yeah. And MDs both. Yeah. Um, and straight PhDs, you know, Fiona Stapleton in Australia uh, spoke about epidemiology, Jennifer Craig and so Jennifer Craig and uh, Kelly Nichols together which was really great to see them. Then we had Dan Nelson, who's an MD PhD with Jennifer Craig, who will be had, she, she's sort of, she's taking control of the next TFOTS workshop. Um, so we came up with 20 episodes based on what I thought would be of interest to doctors. And the whole point is to take this massive body of work and try to make it digestible. Um, so some of them were just going to be, I wanted to highlight more than one or two of the people behind the scenes. Cause I think they offer a lot of value wanted to get some different perspectives. So then my, my other follow-up question was, was there an aha moment that you've had so far with any of the conversations? You know, um, there were, there's a lot of them. There were a lot of things. I was writing down a lot of notes. You know, the fact that epithelial cells produce nerve growth factor. And so that was fascinating to me. So the, the, there's a, its own homeostasis of the corneal epithelium and the nerves the epithelium feeds the nerves, the nerves direct and feed the epithelium. And this homeostasis that occurred, this own little environment that occurred was really something I'd never thought of before or never heard of before, I should say. So I've learned a lot. I mean, I think that's been the biggest epiphany in, in not one moment, but oh my gosh, there's so much work that went into this, even just the definition of dry eye. Oh yeah. All the thoughts, because that led to future research. When we, when you talk about prevalence of dry, it ranges between five and 50%. You know why that is? It's not because it's that much different. It's because of the definition of dry eye. So when they came up with this definition, there was just the minutia, every single word, every single word was analyzed down to every single letter. So, so the amount of work that went into it was just overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, it is um, that it, it's it is overwhelming, and I think that's a detractor for a lot of a lot of docs. And I think you and I have talked about this before: is that you know within Ocular Service Academy and some of the stuff that you do outside of the podcast, but but helping other doctors think about the ocular surfaces, it can be overwhelming to think through how do I do this in my practice. And yet, to your point, when you look at the prevalence of dry eye between five and fifty percent. And if you throw in my bombing gland dysfunction, you're easily, you look at my bombing gland dysfunction and dry eye, you're talking about 70% of the population easy over the age of, over the age of 40, probably. And, and yet what an opportunity, right? Like we could just be dry eye doctors, right? We could, we could have practices full, every single one of our practices, I believe this could be full of dry. I mean, is full of dry eye patients. We just are either embracing it or not embracing it. We could all do a better job of it probably. But, um, how do you translate all of that, all this complex detail that, that um, you and I really geek out about because we're already in the thick of it versus how do you get a guy that, that thinks, yeah, I don't even know if I can, if my patients will, will want to do this. Like, how do you translate that into now you, you tra- teach them how to be a Scott Schachter? Well, we, um, you wouldn't want to be a Scott Schachter, but we, well, Chris the whole Wilson, you want to be podcast. a podcast. This is designed to be background. 
<laughs> this is designed to be translational medicine podcast. So we talk bench to bedside and we want every, every episode we get from these doctors based on your findings. When, when Chris Wolf goes into clinic tomorrow, what should he be thinking about or doing different in his practice? So the idea is to distill it down, make it consumable, digestible, and, and something that you can put into place relatively simply. And that was really important. Um, I mean, you, we can talk into the weeds about all this stuff, but it, it's mean, meaningless if you're not going to use it in practice. So every episode, I try to get out of them. Give me a couple things. And, you know, I don't know if you're, you probably know, I'm lucky enough to have Chris Starr, an ophthalmologist uh, from New York, a uh, brilliant guy who put together the Ascaris pre-surgical preoperative algorithm. So he's very versed in that. Done it. I mean, Chris has had an amazing career. He's a great guy. So we get the ophthalmology perspective in addition to the optometric perspective and that whole conversation, you know, ophthalmologists can take away Chris's thoughts on that and, and the MD, PhD, OD, whatever, who's, who's the speaker. The idea is to make it translatable to the eye care world. So the, uh, the other point I was, I was going to bring up about that is um, my my sense so far has been you you're the one that's kind of probing for a lot of those questions. I I always when he speaks up I'm like oh yeah there's a co-host on that. Is that going to be the case for every if, for every episode or does he take the lead at, in um in any of the episodes? Um well you know Chris, Chris I, I asked him to be essentially sort of a co-host. I mean it's my ent- my entity I should say um but I absolutely thought the MD perspective was critical and and especially considered, considering that ophthalmology is a global profession and optometry is not, or optometrists are not in every country. And this was a very global effort. Um, I forget how many countries took a role. It's in maybe the 30s or 40s of the researchers behind this. So, but but I, it's funny you say that because we've got uh, Priya Gupta coming up, who's a good friend of Chris, who's going to be talking on management or uh, maybe on diagnostics. Um, and I'm, I'd like him to kind of lead the way with that since he knows Priya so well. And there, you know, you get into the pre, preoperative, the surgical stuff. I asked Chris, you, I want you to talk. You're a surgeon. I'm not a surgeon. I want to hear what your thoughts are. And so more and more, I'm trying to, uh, to make this a joint effort or get him more involved. He has yeah. so much. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great perspective from, from both of those standpoints to have. And, and certainly to your point, um, it, it helps you translate that medicine into other paths where they might just turn you off because you're, it's just an OD doing it right. Quote unquote, just an OD. So it right. lets you, it lets you permeate the science into other, into all the avenues of eye care. So it's pretty awesome. One of the things I, I, I we did discuss this a little bit on the last podcast, but it's always, every time I think about this, um, I, I think it, it is um, interesting to think about the, when you think about dues to, and where they stage everything, uh, what is in stage two always blows my mind because I think most people think those things are stage four things, right? Like, um, if, if I, if I have one takeaway from dues two, besides the definition and including things like neuro, you know, neurotrophic issues, or I guess they may not, they may not neurosensory, 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 that's right. And osmolarity and, and, um, the, the other one is, by and large, I think people are waiting way too long to use some of the medication and, uh, and treatment, you know, in-office treatments to approach their dry eye patients. 
Do you think that's getting better? And at what rate do you think it's getting better? I do. I mean, I think especially on the ophthalmology side, recognizing that prior to surgery, especially with premium IOLs, that you really need to make sure those measurements are nailed down. Um, doctors need to more and more recognize that contact lens dropouts are often due to borderline dry patients. If you wait, you're not going to, I mean, it's important to our practices, right? Our contact lens side of our practice matters. Um, and, and even now more than ever, I think during the pandemic, when you talk about Zoom education for kids, you know, I'm for the first time in my career having nine, 10, 11 year olds come in they're, they're asking their parents to bring them in because their eyes are bothering them. So this is a lifetime disease and we should, I mean, step one is great. Artificial tears, lifestyle modifications, nutraceuticals, et cetera, but bring them back and bring yes. them back three or four weeks and let's reassess. And if that's not right, well, that's when the experts tell you, you know, it's not me telling you, it's not Chris Wolf saying to do. I mean, that's when you write a script or you go to my in-office um, expression, et cetera. So the stepwise approach, I think, makes it so simple and it's going to vary. You know, that's why it's called a practice and that's where we get to make our own decisions. But you can look at the framework in terms of diagnosing and treating. It's all right there. And, um, you know, as a vision source member, dry protocol created and and uh, lots of protocols being created. I visited a ton of practice and they all have their sort of approach. But I'm always sort of saying, you know, let's go evidence based. Let's just start with the evidence. And that's where this body of work is that they put so much work into. So that's what I love about TFOS is that they're really behind this worldwide education and putting together an expert consensus to guide doctors. And that's why, again, we're doing this podcast with Lyndon Jones is going to be part of management and therapy and Sophie Dang out of uh, Jules Stein at UCLA is going to be part of it as well. Or is that part of USC now? I can't recall, but they, um, we're, we're going to get these ODs and MDs who are going to really help us understand how we should be approaching it in our practice. Awesome. Scott, I'll be respectful of your time. I'm, I'm so grateful that you came on the podcast and talk about, about your, this project, which I, I uh, have been enjoying so much so far. And um, tell, us every, tell us where we, where everybody can find it. We'll put some links in the show notes. And um, Yeah, I mean, you can find it on ocularsurfaceacademy.com. Uh, and there are links to iTunes or Apple Podcasts. There's links to Spotify and there's links to YouTube right there. Um, the um, podcasts are embedded in the website as well. Awesome. Scott, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate what you're doing, man. We'll uh, yeah, hopefully see I, I appreciate you in person. to get on your famous show, the worldwide, the world famous <laughs> Chris Wolf. Uh, imagine that featuring me. I appreciate it. <laughs>